that chapter 13 would be the number of the chapter that introduces us to the Antichrist. Um, that number, of course, throughout the Bible is associated with um, not black cats or anything like that or bad luck, but the number 13 in the Scriptures is associated with rebellion. And, um, of course, the Antichrist, who is this coming world leader, who's probably... You know, I, I would guess, I don't think it would be bizarre to say that he's probably alive right now. You know, I don't think that's, that's not an extremist position or anything like that to say that this, this individual that is um, somewhere, you know, behind the curtain waiting to, you know, for the curtain to open, for the time to be right. The Bible makes it clear, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that there's something now withholding him from being revealed. And that something is the church, the body of Christ. And once the body of Christ is removed from this earth, as it will be in the rapture, then that's the last thing withholding him from exercising his full authority. Um, but his, his, his nature and his character is one of rebellion. Um, it is the spirit of the devil that works in him. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. Uh, he's subtle. He's all those things that Satan is. And so chapter 13 is the one where we, where we see him appear on the scene. He rises up out of the sea. And, um, you know, the whole world is looking for someone like this. You know, I mean, if you don't realize that the world is probably ready for a guy like this, I mean, when in the last hundred years would it have been possible for someone to have, like, come on the scene and maybe had a real chance at, at uniting the whole earth. I mean, we're, everything is global now. That all happened in our lifetimes. Global communication. You know, television, cell phones, the internet, everything around. You know, the whole earth is connected. I'm still amazed that I can fly to the other side of the planet and from sometimes out in the jungle in the Philippines get a signal... And, and text somebody here in the United States. Like, it, it still boggles my mind that this is that easy to do. And um, I think we even Skyped one time, my wife and I. We were, I was somewhere on some island over there preaching, and I just went, let's see if this works. And we had the computer, and I'm over there, and I'm looking at her, and we're talking live, and I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not that technologically, um, you know, I don't know, adept, but I just find it incredible that, you know, this is not two or three hundred years of technology. This stuff happened in our lifetimes. In our lifetimes. And so the world is like all connected. The problems that happen here affect the whole world. When our economy collapsed in 2008, that collapse rippled out across the whole earth. It affected Japan. It affected Europe. Everything is so linked together now there's very little like separation and sovereignty between the nations. And especially with a president you know, like we have and policies like we have, where more and more the sovereignty of this country is being diminished and we're more and more reminded you know, we're a part of the world community. You know, and more and more of the decisions that a president should be making are being deferred to the UN, as if the UN has you know, the final authority. So, like, it's almost as if the scene, the scene is ripe, it's ready for someone 
to like come and get the world out of the mess that it's in. And the mess, I think, is going to get worse. So it makes the need for somebody like that even greater. So that as the mess gets worse, uh, it gets easier for someone supernaturally gifted with wisdom and power to just come in and, you know, have a solution. And that's, that's what the Bible tells us is going to happen. He's going to deceive the whole world into thinking he has the solution. And, of course, the whole world is moving closer and closer to that condition where they would accept somebody like that. In fact, not even recently, this, this goes back many, many years ago when the, um, the European Union was being formulated. And um, we're going to touch on that a little bit tonight if we have time, but the European Union came into existence in 1957, or at least the idea of it came in, where six nations, six countries in Europe decided to form a common market, right, where at least they could trade goods among themselves without any tariffs, when without any, like without any of those um, protections that, you know, like our economy, we, we put up certain protections to protect businesses and industries here from being, uh, you know, put out of business by, you know, supposedly it was supposed to work that way, from being put out of business by cheap products from abroad. So there's certain kind of like protection. Well, in the European Union, they decided to just put down all those protections and just be considered like one economic unit. And that was in 1957. That was the beginning of what became in, um, I don't remember when, I think it was 2004, officially became the European Union, where they developed, drafted a constitution. Um, oh no, 2004 is when they adopted their currency. And I don't remember the date of the actual constitution. But maybe that was 57. But anyway... But it started out with those six countries, Germany, Belgium, and a few others over there, Spain, Italy, France. And then along the way, others have joined in that. I don't even know how many there are now. I think it's 27, 25, 27, something like that. But it's, uh, right now, the citizens that are underneath that European Union are 500 million people, more than the United States. Now, they don't have a lot of strength because they still bicker a lot among themselves. Uh, but just a few years ago, they decided to create an office of president. And he doesn't have much power yet, but it's probably coming to that. Um, but one of the early founders of the European Union, who at that time was the prime minister of Belgium, his name was Paul Spack, Paul Henry Spack, said this. Uh, he's one of the key founders of the movement that eventually became the European Union. He said, quote, we do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people and to lift us out of the economic morass in which we are sinking. Send us such a man, and be he God or devil, we will receive him. Now, now that's sentiment. That's 40 years ago. That sentiment has only gotten stronger. And there are all kinds of groups of people, I mean from New Agers, even to Muslims, who are expecting some great leader to come and save the world. In fact, um, I don't remember how to pronounce that guy's name. I'm a dinner jabby jobby guy over there in Iran. I don't even know if he's still the president. But when he was the president, you might remember, he came to speak at the U.N., 
and uh, Ahmadinejad. Um, he's, uh, you know, the Iranians are Shiite Muslims, and the Shiites have a belief in someone called the 12th Iman, Imam. And um, he's a descendant of some relative of Muhammad's many, many years ago, who supposedly in the 9th or 10th century just disappeared. And according to some prophecies, at the end of the world, he will appear. He's called the 12th Imam. And in Iran, there are many that like strongly believe in the appearance, the coming of this 12th Imam. And, a, and Ahmadinejad was one of them. When he made his speech at the United Nations, he closed his speech with a prayer. And he prayed to Allah. And he said this to Allah. He said, O mighty Lord... I pray to you to hasten the emergence of your last repository, the promised one, that perfect and pure human being, the one that will fill this world with justice and peace. Now, he wasn't talking about Jesus Christ. He was talking about the 12th Imam, the one that the Muslims are expecting. And Ahmadinejad believes that he's the one that's going to help get the world in the right condition for the 12th Imam to come. So they believe it's like right now on top of us. It's right here. In fact, when he went back to Iran after his speech, he claimed, um, uh, he claimed that when he had prayed at the UN, he said this. He said that when he prayed in the name of God, the Almighty and Merciful, this is what he said in a speech back in his country after he had gone to the UN. He said, Someone saw a light around me, and I was placed inside of this aura. I felt it myself. I felt the atmosphere suddenly change. And for those 27 or 28 minutes, the leaders of the world did not blink. They were wrapped. Of course, we know it's nonsense, but this is what he believes happened. It seemed as if a hand was holding them there and had opened their eyes to receive the message from the Islamic Republic. So he believes he's a prophet, an, a, a precursor, like a, a John the Baptist who will precede this 12th imam, this hero who's going to come and save the world. Uh, Jews are expecting a Messiah. Muslims are expecting the 12th imam. The UN is expecting some kind of a hero to show up. That's what they wish for. Even the Vatican, this is pretty interesting. The Vatican maintains an observatory, two observatories actually, one in Rome and one in Arizona, on a mountaintop in Arizona. And they spend millions of dollars every year, many millions of dollars every year, in a search at these two observatories. They're not studying the heavens or studying the constellations. They admit that those two astronomy, uh, those two um, astronomical observatories are dedicated to one thing, the search for extraterrestrial life. Now, you thought only nut jobs, you know, who are camped out by Area 51 or something are the ones that are interested in that. No, more and more, a lot of, even the UN several years ago, uh, declared that they were very open to the idea of extraterrestrials. And they don't, you know, ridicule that idea anymore. The Vatican is actively spending millions of dollars searching for that. In fact, in Arizona, and you could look this up for yourself, um, in Arizona, their observatory on Mount Sherman 
has the largest infrared telescope in the world. It's nicknamed, their nickname for it is Lucifer. And they're looking for a particular kind of life. A particular kind of life. I'll read it, I'll let the uh, director of the observatory, a Jesuit priest named um, uh, Jose Gabriel Funes, he's the director of the Vatican Observatory, I'll let him uh, explain it to you. Um, he was being interviewed uh, after he had written an article in a Catholic newspaper called The Alien is My Brother. And uh, he was saying in that article that astronomy has a profound human value. It is a science that opens the heart and the mind. It helps us to put our lives, our hopes, our problems in the right perspective. In this regard, and here I speak as a priest and as a Jesuit, it is an apostolic instrument that can bring us closer to God. Astro you know, observatories and telescopes are, an in are instruments that can bring us closer to God. How so? Regarding the beginning of the universe... Father Funes says that he personally believes that the Big Bang Theory seems to him the most plausible and that it does not contradict the Bible. We cannot ask the Bible for a scientific answer here on this subject. At the same time, we don't know if in a near future the Big Bang Theory will be superseded by a more complete and precise explanation of the origin of the universe. When he was asked about the possibility of extraterrestrial life, the director of the Vatican Observatory responded, responded that it is possible, uh, even though up until now we have no proof, but certainly in such a big universe, this hypothesis cannot be excluded. Asked if he sees a contradiction between the Catholic faith and believing in aliens, he said, I think that there isn't. Just as there is a multiplicity of creatures over the earth, so there could be other beings, even intelligent beings created by God. This is not in contradiction with our faith because we cannot limit God's creative freedom. To say it with to say with Saint Francis, if we can speak, if we can consider some earthly creatures as our brothers and sisters, why can we not speak of brother alien? He he would also belong to God's creation. Uh, Father Funes says that taking the image of the lost sheep in the gospel, we could easily think that in the universe there can be a hundred sheep, equivalent to a hundred different kinds of creatures in the universe. We belonging to the human kind could be the lost sheep. You remember, one out of 99 is lost. And saying that, assuming that there would be other intelligent beings, we could not say that they need redemption. In other words, we were affected by the fall, but what if, and, and obviously the Bible is written about a fall of man on the earth, so he's saying, well, what if that fall didn't affect other creatures from other, other planets who, who, unaffected by sin, never broke fellowship with their Creator. Therefore, they would know and understand the truth clearer than we do. He said in another article, he said, and they believe, they believe as of March last year, last month, last month, this year, they believe, and they stated, because they had a big conference in Rome about all this, bunch of scientists came together under the Vatican sponsorship and they said they believe they'll make contact within the next 20 years with Brother Alien. And they said when they do, our idea of the gospel may have to be completely reconsidered because maybe somebody of superior intelligence who never lost fellowship with God could come down here and would be actually more spiritually advanced than us and rather than 
and Father Funes said, rather than me baptizing him into the Catholic faith, he may need to baptize us into his faith. Now, that's not a nut job in a trailer out in the desert saying that. That's the Jesuit head of the Vatican Observatory who can't say these things. You know, there's a Jesuit pope for the first time right now, too. The first Jesuit pope in history. And he can't say these things without approval from the big guy. The big guy in the dress in the Vatican. That guy. That, I don't mean the big guy. I don't mean the Lord. I mean the guy who thinks he's the big guy. Jesuit is a certain kind of a priest. They, it was a, you know, have they, like have they have different orders of priests, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the, you know, the Jesuits were formed as a, um, to undermine the Reformation. They were formed by um, Ignatius Loyola in the 1600s or 1500s. At the time the Reformation was happening, when many countries were rebelling against Catholicism and many countries were coming to the gospel, Germany especially. And so the Catholic Church saw that they were, leaving, they were losing ground all over Europe. And so an order of priests called the Jesuits were formed for one reason, to destroy this book and to destroy the Reformation. The Jesuits are normally the most highly educated. They normally don't wear a collar. They don't normally serve as pastors. They serve as educators. Georgetown University is a Jesuit college. Uh, they have like 160 or 170 universities around the world that are Jesuit run. And they infiltrated. They've been kind of the CIA of the Catholic Church. The underground, the secret agents. They're the ones that infiltrate, gover infiltrate governments, including ours. Uh, they were involved, believe it or not, in the assassination of President Lincoln. And the assassination of a lot of leaders around the world. And they work behind the scenes. And they've been around, they've been, there was a period in time when they were kicked out of all the countries of the world. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was just digging through my files and I wasn't going to do this tonight. I was actually, I have some things for you in the, maybe in the next week or two on some things about this particular Pope and the Jesuits in general. And just, I've done just lately, just reading and reading and reading a little bit more about the Jesuits and digging up some, some video clips on things. But I was reading some quotes by some of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, and uh, three or four. When it came time to draw up our Constitution in the United States, do you know that they, they did not want Jes Jesuits were not allowed to enter this country in those days because they were known to be, even then, by Jefferson and the other men that wrote our Constitution, they were known to be subversive agents. And they wrote, I mean, you can look them up on the Internet, they wrote articles that the most dangerous element uh, that could ever enter this country would be the Jesuit priests. And it's just because they, they serve one goal, and that is to somehow bring the whole world into, into worship, you know, into obe obedience to the Pope. But anyway, so do you see how, I mean, the devil is sort of, I don't know, like in a lot of different areas, Catholicism, Islam, the UN, in politics, even among like New Agers, we have a book downstairs that was written a long time ago, and most of you probably have read it, and if you haven't, you should. Uh, it's a book about the King James Bible. It's New Age Bible versions. And even in that book, in New Age Bible versions, the author, Gail Ripplinger, makes it clear how... All, and, and it's a book explaining the differences between the King James Bible and all these modern versions. 
And there are many books like that that explain the, ver- the, you know, the differences between the King James and the modern versions. But what New Age Bible versions does that the other books didn't do is that she shows not so much how all those other so-called Bibles differ from the King James, but how all those other so-called Bibles agree with each other. That was the point of her book. It's like these are, these are different kinds of committees. These books were all like transla- these so-called Bibles were all translated at different times by different committees, but they make the same changes and they diminish the deity of Christ. Um, and in many subtle ways, she shows in that book how many of these new Bibles, the NIV and the new ASV, are actually preparing people for the coming of the Antichrist just by the changes they make in some of these, ver- in some of these verses, including where sometimes um, instead of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's just called the One in some of these new Bibles. And in esoteric literature, occult literature, that's normally the, na- the label for Lucifer, the One. Sometimes he's called the Virgin or the One. And so the language of many of these new Bibles is very consistent with all these new age groups that are, you know, preparing the world for the coming of their Christ. I mean, they're expecting a Christ, not the Lord Jesus Christ, but a Christ, an enlightened one. Uh, Eastern, all the Eastern religions are expecting. All I'm saying is that the world, every like group in the world is sort of ready for it. Even people who are not religious and aren't involved in the occult are sick and tired enough of the way things are going and have seen enough alien movies, you know, from, you know, from Star Wars all the last 20 years. I mean, I think if some if, if something came down from the sky, I don't think anybody would be that terrified. I mean, they might be a little shocked for a few minutes, but after, you know, a reasonable explanation on television, everybody would just be, "Oh, isn't it great?" I don't think it would be that weird. We're we're being condi- the world is being conditioned being conditioned for such a man as you see in Revelation chapter 13. And that's how he so easily deceives the world. And the Lord, it says in 2 Thessalonians, he, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, oh no, let's not go there yet. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13. I'll get there eventually. Um, But anyway, um, Let's uh, let's just get into let's just get into our study tonight. <clears throat> but but here's here's the man in Revelation chapter thirteen who is not coming with horns and a pitchfork. I mean, he's coming. He's going to be able to deceive people. The only way, you know, the devil is a deceiver. It says so right back there in Revelation chapter twelve and verse number. Um, He's the accuser and the deceiver, and he deceives the world. Um, he's, the God, he's called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, he's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of what? Disobedience. So that's a spirit of disobedience. That's the, that's the general undertone of a lost person. Disobedience. There's a, there's a resistance to the truth. That's why when you give the gospel to somebody, they don't normally just light up and say, wow, I've been waiting for this my whole life. No, I mean, the normal reaction is they put up their guard, they resist, 
They may argue. They may, you know, it's not normally well received at the first shot. So there's that spirit of disobedience that, that comes from Satan that works in the children of disobedience. And the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13 is a man so full of the devil, so supernaturally endowed with power and wisdom that he will be almost impossible to resist. Now, when he has, when he's at full power, thank God we will not be here. That, that's God's mercy for his church. But that doesn't mean that we won't see him getting his act together. We, that doesn't mean that we won't see him putting his alliances together. And, and we'll show you in a second. We've done it before, I know, but I think it's good for us just to touch on it again. Because the common conception out there is that the Antichrist does not appear in any fashion. Nobody will know who he is because he shows up and pops his head up after we're gone. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible just says that he can't come to full strength and full power. He can't exercise authority and actually put his plan into operation until we're gone. But that doesn't mean he won't already be showing himself on this earth and the saints of God will be able to see it and will know among ourselves that this is the guy. And why, what would, how would that be a benefit to us? Well, we'd know that our, the time of our departure is very, very near. And so that's why a study of Revelation chapter 13 is not irrelevant for us because we're going to see the indications of this man's presence on the earth. All right, uh, a couple of verses here. Um, Revelation 13, we'll just... The, the portion that deals with him personally, it goes down through verse number 8. And, uh, but we're only going to probably do the first two verses tonight. It says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the, names, the name of blasphemy. So he's not only a deceiver, but he's a blasphemer. So you can see that he has a tremendous hatred for the Lord. So this is an enemy of God. This is not just a poor misled politician who's got visions of grandeur and thinks he's somebody. No, this is, this is somebody with a 6,000-year-old grudge against God. And he's been restrained for 6,000 years from exercising his power at full strength. He's been on a leash, you could say. The devil has been allowed to survive and to live. And but we read this before in, in the book of Job. God told Job, can you play with the devil like a bird in a cage? Can you do that, Job? Because I can, is what he was saying. And so God allowed the devil to stay alive. He made a covenant with the devil, but he has limitations. Even in the book of Job, the devil had to come in and report to God, and God, he had to give an account to God what he's been up to. So he's not all-powerful. He's the God of this world, meaning he has liberty to work in the hearts of men, but God can overrule any of those decisions that he makes at any time. I mean, he holds the unsaved person like a prisoner, but Jesus Christ, when the saints begin to pray for that person, Jesus Christ has the power to go in and break those bonds and let that person out, let that prisoner out. You, you get... You sort of focus the prayers of God's people on that. I told a brother who's been praying for his unsaved wife for a long time, and she's been 
she's been pretty obstinate about the gospel and pretty stubborn and made life really difficult for him ever since he got saved. And I said, you know what I think I'd like to do the next time we have a men's breakfast? We have 70, 80 guys there, Lord willing. I said, we ought to just have our breakfast and then get on our knees and every single one of us pray for your wife by name. And just pray the power of God down on that woman's head that the Lord would break her heart, open her eyes, break those bonds. Because I really believe that when God's people concentrate their efforts to pray, I mean, if, it, if even two or three gathered together and agreeing together concerning something that is the will of God, it, 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 gets, a, it gets a response from the Lord. I mean, it gets things happen. That's why that prayer chain thing, I mean, with, there's 200 of us on that thing. And my hope is that when those texts go out, at least half of us are praying, a third of us are praying, because that's 50, 60 people maybe that are praying about that thing at that moment. And that has to have an effect. I know it does. I'm confident that it does. But anyway, um, how did I get on that? I don't know how I got on that. But anyway, let's get back to the, the verse here. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, remember the dragon from chapter 12? The dragon is definitely the devil, right? And the dragon looks exactly like the beast, like father, like son, you know. He's just a chip off the old block. The devil is described in chapter 12, and it's the same description, right? In verse number, uh, verse number 3 of chapter 12, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns, and the beast in chapter 13. This is not the devil, it's not the dragon, but it, it, it's the dragon, it's Satan who gives him his power. So this is a man. And, um, and uh, notice it says, the dragon gave him his power and his seat. That's pretty important. So that means he has, he has a position, a place. A seat is like a throne. You ever heard the, uh, the expression uh, concerning the Vatican, the Holy See? S-E-E, the Holy See, you probably haven't, but I mean it's a term they use, meaning that the Pope's throne, when he speaks from the throne or ex-cathedra, that, that law that was voted in years ago in the 1800s, that when the Pope speaks ex-cathedra from that chair, from that seat, speaking officially as the head of Catholicism, he cannot err. He cannot be wrong. He's infallible. So that means in that seat... When he speaks concerning any spiritual, theological issue, he's, he, you're not allowed to contradict him. He's infallible. So that position is his seat. So the devil, is going, this Antichrist, is going to have a seat. I don't think it's going to be the Vatican, but that means he's going to occupy some kind of a political office. He'll be the president of a country. He'll be, you know, he's not going to be some, you know, some lieutenant colonel coming up in some army somewhere and, no, he's going to have a position. He'll have a seat, have a place of authority. Um, he'll be some kind of a world leader. And his ability, his ability to speak is going to be amazing. He's going to have a very glib tongue. Um, and people are going to find it impossible to resist his wisdom. You'll see from Daniel that that's so. But I want you to note here, before we run over to Daniel, we're going to go there now, but look at these uh, animals that are mentioned here. And there's a reason they're mentioned. The beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, a bear, a lion, and then the beast, the, the Antichrist himself. So there's four things there that are mentioned. Now, turn with me back to the book of Daniel, 
because I told you last time that Revelation and Daniel got, have got to go together. They, are, they interpret each other. And I'm convinced that there's even parts of them that are not going to be able to be interpreted until after you and I are gone. So I don't worry too much over things in here that are hard to understand because it's very likely that some things in Revelation and Daniel are not meant to be understood by you and me. So I'm not sweating it because some of it isn't going to be clear until the 144,000 are preaching these things in the tribulation and the Spirit of God will give them understanding. But um, anyway, we can still attempt to, you know, attempt to understand and ask the Lord to help us understand. But Daniel chapter 7. So in Daniel chapter 7, remember the three animals that, were, that the Antichrist was likened to? A leopard, a bear, and a lion? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, you're going to see those same animals described here only in the reverse order. They're described here in Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse number 2. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. All right, the beast in Revelation 13 comes up out of the sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion. Verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second like unto a bear. Go down to verse 6. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard. Now, that's the reverse order of the ones in Revelation chapter 13. Chapter 13, it's a leopard, a bear, a lion, and then the Antichrist. But in Daniel, notice it's a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then a beast that Daniel can't even figure out what it is. Look in verse number 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, strong exceedingly, and it had, a, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. All right, so now you've got all four beasts, but any idea why they would be in reverse order? Well, it's not a trick question. Daniel was looking to the future. Daniel was looking, you know, looking ahead. So from Daniel's or the order of Daniel's thing. Things It was a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then this really horrible beast at the end. John is looking at it from the future. He's looking back, and he sees it in exactly the reverse order. So John is looking, I mean, Daniel was looking at this thing ahead, and John is looking at it, he's looking back in history, Daniel was looking ahead, ahead in history. Um, Keep your finger there in Daniel chapter 7. We're just going to flip back and forth between Revelation 13 and Daniel, so keep a finger in those two places. Let's go back to Revelation 13. Uh, I do need to read ahead a couple of verses. Verse number 3, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. So, from that statement, most people believe that, and I, I guess I agree. I, don't, I haven't seen anything to the contrary to this that at some point in the Antichrist's career, uh, he's going to receive a deadly wound. He's going to be, there's going to be an assassination attempt. And it'll appear to be uh, successful. The wound is deadly. He dies of his wounds. But then he comes back to life. And that's when the whole world stops fighting him. Because, he, because he's going to claim, as you see in some of these other verses, he's going to claim to be Jesus Christ. He's going to claim to be the Lord. And when someone kills him or tries to kill him, and then he comes back to life, well, that ends that debate. 
And so it says here, I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast. Say, now, you know what? We, you know, there might be an element in this country that holds the president in high esteem, but nobody actually, in a religious sense, worships him. There were, there were times in history, like the Caesars you know, demanded worship, you know, in some countries, the king, uh, you know, might be deluded enough to believe that he's a god. He's an inc- in Thailand, the king is worshipped. He's an incarnation, they believe, of a god. And so they worship the king in Thailand. Some countries are like that. The Antichrist is going to be like that. He's going he's to be not just admired, but worshipped like a god. That's what the devil has wanted from the very beginning. And it says, and um, they're going to worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? And who is able to make war with him? So it's fruitless to try and resist this guy because he's too powerful. So the nations won't. It says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things. So he's, he's a tremendous... He's good at making speeches. He's a tremendous orator. Um, and many of the greatest leaders you know, down through history have been great speech makers. You know, that's how you move society. You convince them with your words. And... Um, the devil, from the beginning, convinced a woman to sin with his words. That's all he did. He just showed up by the tree, talked her into sin. Guys have been doing that with women ever since. Just go in any bar. There's a lot of conversations going on, and most of them are men trying to get women to sin. So, for 6,000 years, that hasn't changed. And if the devil is going to try to seduce the world, he's going to do it with his words. He's going to be great at talking people into evil. And uh, so he's going to have a mouth speaking these great things. Hitler did it. Like, you guys have seen the History Channel and all that sort of stuff. How does one guy keep hundreds of thousands of people spellbound like that? I mean, as if they were listening to a god. There's a spirit that comes over people in a moment. If you can create the right atmosphere where people just believe that the words coming out of that guy's mouth have got to be the wisest things they, that they've ever heard. And a lot of great leaders have had that ability to do that. It says, and notice, but he speaks great things and blasphemies. So while he's preaching, he's blaspheming God. How would you blaspheme God? By bringing God down to man's level and putting you up on God's level. That's blasphemy. Bringing God down to man's level. Charging God with things that you could charge men with. That's blasphemy. Charging God with sin like you could charge your next-door neighbor with. That's blasphemy. And attributing to yourself God-like qualities, putting yourself above mankind. That's blasphemy. So that's what he's going to speak. And power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. So he's going to rule for three and a half years. All right? Uh, Okay, let's go back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Go to verse number 8. And I considered the horns, the ten horns. And behold, there came up among them, remember there are ten horns. There came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Right? Exactly like Revelation chapter 13. So now you're seeing that this this Antichrist, this little horn, comes up in the midst of the other ten. 
You're going to see in a minute that the other ten represent kings. Kings that are in power in the last days. In the days in which, probably the, the days in which you and I are living right now. Ten sovereign nations and their leaders. And the Antichrist is going to come up in the midst of them. All right? Let's, uh, let's skip ahead. Go a little further in, Revelation, uh, in Daniel. Go down to verse number 19. It says, Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake great, very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellow. All right, so this is not a, a pansy-looking guy. This is somebody just his, his very stature and his look is intimidating. All right, so his, just his appearance is going to be intimidating. And when he opens his mouth, it's going to be spellbinding. And then when he's supernaturally brought back to life, who's going to not follow a guy like this? You know, can you imagine? Now, let's think, let's think in realistic terms here. If this is as close as we, as every Bible believer that I know believes it is, Brother Pat and I agree, and every preacher that I know who loves this book agrees, that these are not things in the far distant future, but near. If that's true, then that means many of your neighbors and my neighbors, people that you know and work with, maybe relatives who are not saved would be in that crowd who potentially would be deceived, would be so mesmerized, so ready for somebody to fix the stinking problems of this world that they would be ready to follow and obey the laws that this man puts in place. And the laws include a change in the economy and to finally get rid of terrorism and theft and identity theft and everything else, just going to somehow tattoo your ID right in your skin. And uh, you know, nobody's going to think there's anything wrong with that. It makes perfect sense. And, but the Bible calls it in, this, in the book of Revelation the, his mark, the mark of the beast. In fact, God condemns those who receive it to hell. So, I mean, if nothing else... I mean, we won't be alive to see this man wreck and ruin the earth. We'll be in heaven when it happens. But, I mean, maybe somebody you know will be here. Somebody you know, a neighbor, a loved one, a friend, somebody, a co-worker, somebody you care about may still be here. So it, it could be and should be maybe some motivation for you and I to... I mean, the gospel ought to be our real motivation and not anything about the end times. But I'm saying, combined with the desire that you and I should already have to see people saved, it ought to be it ought to help to light a can you know, light a fire under you, if nothing else does, that we need we need to be about our father's business. We need and in fact, the Spirit of God, when he goes into the world, he reproves the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. So, you know, the fear of judgment is not necessarily a bad fear. It's not a bad thing. Uh, anyway, all right. So we're in Daniel chapter Daniel chapter seven. Um, where did we Where did we stop? Uh, Twenty one. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Now we showed you before how those four beasts 
the lion, the bear, the leopard represent, um, and the and the great be- the fourth beast represent also those four world empires. Um, remember, in the early part of book of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision and he saw a big image, and it was divided into four parts, made out of four different kinds of precious metal, and uh, and and then Daniel interpreted that dream and told him that those that big image and those four parts represented the nation of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, which was overthrown by the Persian Empire, which was overthrown by the Greek Empire, which was overthrown by the Roman Empire. Those were the four nations. In Daniel chapter 7, those are the same nations, kingdoms represented. The, the leopard, the bear, the lion, or I think I got them out of order, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and then that fourth beast. So that fourth dreadful, terrible beast would be the Roman Empire. And then out of that, out of that Roman Empire, you say, well, that was a long time ago. I mean, the Roman Empire ended in the 4th century, right? I mean, 5th century. You know, it just collapsed. But it didn't really collapse. You know, the political part of the Roman Empire collapsed, but then the religious part of the Roman Empire continued. The religious part of the Roman Empire continued because before it collapsed politically, the Roman Empire had become a Christian, a so-called Christian nation. Constantine one of the great emperors from the 4th century of the Roman Empire, converted to Christianity, to Catholicism, and he declared Catholicism as the official religion of the Roman Empire. Well, the emperors ended. I mean, there were no more emperors after the 5th century, but the popes continued in their place. The Holy Roman Empire continued to rule the world. The Middle Ages. If you know anything about the Middle Ages... Roman Catholicism dominated history until the time of the Reformation. Partly the Reformation was a resistance against that di- the dictatorship of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Empire was gone. I mean, the legions were gone. The armies were gone. But in their place was the influence of a religion that had the same kind of dictatorial control over people, kept people in ignorance, most of the world was illiterate on purpose. Wherever that, that religious aspect of the Roman Empire was in power, people were kept illiterate for a reason. You know why that is, right? Now, they weren't illiterate in the days of Jesus Christ. I mean, men read the Scriptures. The common people read the Scriptures. But how is it like hundreds of years later in the Middle Ages, nobody can read? Well, because that keeps things safe. If we have an illiterate church, and I'm the only one with a Bible, and I'm the only one that can read the Bible, then I can tell you whatever I want to tell you. I can make up whatever I want to make up. You can't read it anyway, especially then if I outlaw, if I make it against the law for you even to possess the Bible, which it was for almost a thousand years. The common people in the Middle Ages, especially in Europe, couldn't own a Bible. That was only the privilege of somebody in the priest class. You know, if you went to, you know, if you were being trained for the ministry, if you were a monk or a priest, then you could have a Bible, a Latin Bible, and you could read it, although they didn't even, uh, they didn't even read it. But the common person couldn't read it. You didn't know what the Scriptures said. You had to be told, you know, you, you could be told whatever they wanted to tell you. So it's a kind of, it's a kind of uh, oppression. It's a kind of dictatorship. So that fourth beast didn't die when the Roman Empire crumbled. That beast continued on. In fact, in in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, 
that beast near the bottom of that image, it split into two legs, which is exactly what happened in the Roman Empire. There was a split in the 5th century, and it split between the eastern part of the Roman Empire and the western part of the Roman Empire. So, Daniel's vision of those beasts came true in history. So, in a sense, that fourth beast is still on the earth. It's still here. It hasn't died. It's still exercising authority. It's described in a little more detail in Revelation chapter 17. And it's not just religion, because out of that territory that the Roman Empire once controlled rose, in our lifetimes, the European Union. So in that same territory have arisen, now it's more than 10 kings, that right now it's 27, so I don't know what will happen, like if maybe there's some sort of an economic collapse and the European Union expels some nations and it comes back to just 10, or there's 10 that are dominant over the others, or something, but it certainly seems like those ten, those ten kings are going to rise up out of that territory that was once controlled by the old Roman Empire. But notice down in verse number 23, Daniel 7:23. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. From Daniel's day, Rome was the fourth beast, the fourth kingdom, the fourth empire to rule the world. Right, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And it speaks about, of course, there was an end to the political side and military side of the Roman Empire, but the religious part never died. And that has spread around the world. That has gone, that's gone global. You know, the Caesars never, their influence didn't reach around the globe. But when the military and the political part of the Roman Empire collapsed and the religious part continued, that part has gone around the whole earth and has tread it down and broken it in pieces. Now watch this, verse 24. And the ten horns, verse 24 leaps into our day. Because you just jumped, in verse number 24, you just jumped over 1,200 years of history, right up until the present. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, future. And another shall rise after them. That's that little horn. That's the beast out of Revelation chapter 13. Shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three of those kings. So do you see what's happening? That means, I always think, I've always told people, if you want to know what's going on, watch Israel. I have on my phone, I get one of those news feeds, and I get the news from Israel every day. And I, that's always the first thing I check. I want to know what's going on today in Israel. What, what, what battle are they fighting? Who's attacking them now? Because God's eye is on Israel. That's, that's where you know what's going on. wouldn't be a bad idea to get a subscription to the Jerusalem Post or something like that, but keep your eye on the Middle East because that's what God is watching. He has been from the days of, Ad, from the days of Abraham. God's eye has been on the Middle East, not on New York. But if there is any other place in the world to watch, it would be what's going on in Europe, because that's the old Roman Empire. And out of that ground, out of that territory, and even in our lifetimes has arisen a government with a president again. And it's pretty weak right now, but something is going to happen to, uh, 
And maybe it's the weakness that will allow someone like an Antichrist to exploit that and subdue it and bend it to his will. So it doesn't necessarily mean that what's there has to be strong. It just has to be in place. That's all it needs is just to be in place. And that's what this is talking about. And I don't know if, you, if it gets you excited, but it's in place now. It's in place now. In the last 10 years. Not 50, 60, 80 years ago. In the last 10 years. They have an economy. A currency. And now all of a sudden, they're being tested. Right? Russia's flexing its muscles again. And um, so it's pretty interesting what's going on in Europe. So if there's two places you really need to watch... It's not California. It's not Hollywood. It's Europe and Israel. That's where the future is being, you know, rolled out. But anyway, it says, now this one that comes up among those ten, it says, verse 25 here, it says again, like it did in Revelation 13, and he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. That's pretty interesting. Think to change times. What would that mean? How do you change the times? Any idea? What, what would you do to change the times? Just readjust the calendar. Now, Rome became a city, by the way, in about 700 B.C. Supposedly, according to legend, founded by a guy named Romulus, right? And he named a city after him, Rome. Romulus made the first calendar for his empire. And that calendar was in existence for 40 years. His successor, the next king, the second king of the Roman Empire, I mean B.C., this is like 650 B.C., uh, revised that calendar and adjusted it. And that calendar was in place until Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar in 43 or 40, something like that, 47 B.C., came up with the Julian calendar. And that calendar was in place until... I think it was the 1580s or 1582 or something like that, when Pope Gregory the 13th came up with the Gregorian calendar. Three Roman kings and one Roman pope dictated the times. They adjusted the calendar. The original calendar of the Roman Empire, when it was just a, basically the city-state like Rome, only had ten months. The calendar started in March, it ended in December, and everything from December to March was just... Those days were not even assigned to any particular month. They started it in, month, in March because that was the day, that was the month that had the spring equinox in it. When, well, we won't go into that. But anyway, so then the next guy, which was Numa, I forget his name, but anyway, the second king of Rome, his first name was Numa. It was called the Numa calendar. He added January and February. So he, and, but, but, but each of the months had different numbers of days, different from ours. And his calendar only ended up with 255 days. So obviously, every couple of years, the calendar is getting off with the seasons. Because there's obviously the sun, you know, you know so, every, so now you're off. So every three or four years, somebody had to add extra days in it to bring the calendar, even with the spring equinox again. So that the spring equinox, which was the highest holy day in the Roman religion before Christ, that was their big day. It was like their Easter in fact, later it became, it was called Easter, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came. Easter had the name Easter before the Christians called it Easter. It was named for Ishtar, the goddess Ishtar. And it was the biggest day in the Roman religion. 
and it had to come around the time of the spring equinox. But if your calendar is off by two or three days or 10 days or 15 days, now every year the spring equinox is, instead of March 21st like it is now every year, it's you know March 20th, and the next year it's March 22nd, it's Mar- whatever it is, it's just always off. So eventually you could have summer and it would be December. So every few years they had to keep adjusting the calendar. Julius Caesar fixed that. Julius Caesar put 365 days in the calendar. Started with him. But he was off by a quarter of a day. So every four years, he had to add in an extra day. Anybody remember what that year is called? That's a leap year. That came with Julius Caesar. But it was still... It still made, but anyway, Pope Gregory adjusted it again. So the guy that has thought to change the times, four times since Rome began until the present time, there's been four changes... To the times. When the Antichrist comes, he's gonna, it's not going to be a big deal. He's just going to think to change it again. I mean, I don't know what his reason for doing that will be, but the Bible says there's going to be a change to the calendar. Somebody's going to propose it, suggest it, somebody's going to come up with something, there'll be some reason why he's going to justify that. So he's going to change the times and the laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of times. All right, there it is again. Remember that expression? Three and a half years, okay? And then it says, verse 26, But the judgment shall sit, and they, meaning the saints, the people of God who are being persecuted by him, shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it unto the end. So in the end, he loses, they win. That prophesies his destruction when the end comes. Um, Skip over, let's just, I was going to read something out of chapter 8, but we don't have time. Just go over to chapter 11. Chapter 11 I wish we had time. Daniel, like, needs a study all of its own. I mean, we need to go through the book of Daniel and just give it... it, it, I'm not doing it much justice here. But the book of Daniel, there are so many important prophecies in the book of Daniel. And when Daniel speaks, many times he's speaking about um, literal kings, literal leaders that were maybe 100 or 200 years in the future from Daniel's time. But then sometimes those kings also have a prophetic, they also represent somebody in the far distant future. Like these beasts were literal kingdoms, right? Um, um, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But they also, and, their lead, and those ten horns and that little horn represent real people. That, and some of those things were fulfilled in the near future as far as Daniel was concerned. But some of those things are fulfilled in the distant future, in our time, right now. And that's what happens in Daniel chapter 11. Look in verse number 35. Now, earlier in Daniel chapter 11, there are some wars that are described here that were actual wars that took place during the days right after Alexander the Great. Uh, Some of the details of these wars, if you take Daniel chapter 11 and you lay it against history from those years, like uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century B.C., these battles and wars that are described here match up with things that actually happen in history. And so, for that reason, some people claim, well, the book of Daniel has already been fulfilled. That's got nothing to do with us. It, 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 if it is prophecy, it was fulfilled a long time ago. It's irrelevant. That's the Catholic Church's position. They believe that Daniel was a prophet, but all these prophecies were already fulfilled. That keeps the heat off them. That keeps these things from in any way being pointed at them. But notice... In Daniel chapter 11, all of a sudden, the narrative in Daniel chapter 11 leaps over the history 
of the near future, as far as Daniel was concerned, into the far distant future, which is our time. In verse number 35, it says, And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end. So with that little statement, you know, okay, uh uh-oh, I'm not back in Daniel's day. I'm not back in Alexander the Great's day. I'm not back in the days of the Caesars. Right now, I'm at, at this point in this chapter, you're at the time of the end. Right? And so now what does it describe at the time of the end? Because it is yet for a time appointed. And the king, so now it's going to focus on a king at the time of the end. This king shall do ex- according to his will. A willful king. A uh, uh, in other words, a rebel. It's going to be his way. You remember what it said about Lucifer in, in, in Isaiah chapter 14? When Lucifer, who in the beginning was a cherub in heaven, who had a, who had a job in heaven, he led the music and the, and the worship of heaven. He had authority over the angels, had authority over all the creatures in heaven. But remember from his throne, from Lucifer's throne, he could look up in Mount Zion. He could see the Lord's throne And he said in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, he said, I will exalt my throne. I will ascend up into heaven. I will do this. I will do that. I will. Five times. The number of death in the Bible. He said, I will. I will. I will. You know what the original sin was? It was to to self-will. Instead of being obedient to the will of God, like you and I should be, And that's why when a person is resistant to the will of God, that's a satanic spirit. That's an evil spirit. And that's just, you know, that's the way we are. All we like sheep have gone, you know, all we like sheep have gone our own way. We have turned everyone to his own way. All right? So that self-will, that's that spirit of disobedience in us that comes from Satan. And he had that from the beginning. So this king is going to be full of that. He says, the king shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. This is the, this is the guy from Revelation chapter 13. That little horn with the big mouth speaking great things, blasphemies against God. This is him. And shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the god of his father's now, for that reason, because of that statement, I think, I don't know if any, I don't know who, I haven't really looked to see who agrees or disagrees, but it seems to me like the God of his fathers means he would have to have some Jewish blood in him. And, and the God of his fathers, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he's got no regard for that God. I mean, he's got a history and he's, he's aware of that history. And I don't think, and, and because he's coming in the beginning to lure the Jews into believing that he is their Messiah, they would never accept a Gentile Messiah to begin with. So he's got, he, he must have some Jewish blood in him because it says here, he will not regard the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. Some people think for that reason he'll be a homosexual. And it's very most likely that that's what that statement means right there. Thus you see right now the rise of that sin all around the world where that crowd is dictating policy to the rest of the world. Where that crowd can now exert pressure and get the, get the, head, of, you know, the head of companies fired just because that guy donated money to a cause that they don't like 16 or whatever it was, six or seven years ago. You say, they, you know, it's uh, like, I forget who it was. 
even a guy that none of us like, Bill Maher. Bill Maher? How do you say that guy's name? Bill Maher? Mayor? Whatever it is. Said that there was a... They're like the mafia. They're like the mafia. You get on the wrong side of them, you're going to get whacked. And that's, that's the truth. And um, so... He's gonna. So it's gonna. That's the spirit of the days in which we live. That's the spirit of the times. So he is. He's. Uh, it says he'll not uh, regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god. Why? Because he thinks he's God. <laughs> he's got. He's gotten. He's not religious at all. He just wants to be worshipped. The only religion he's interested in is worship me. It says, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces. How about that? Isn't it weird? There's a general belief in this world among young people, at least, who've been thoroughly indoctrinated, you know, with Yoda and all the rest of that stuff, you know, the force be with you. I mean, there's an idea, it's common among young people, you know, that, you know, God is just this, like, electricity, it's just this power, it's this, it's this force in the world. And uh, so he'll use that, too. He, uh, in his state, he'll honor the God of forces. And a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them, and you might want to circle that word them, because there ain't no them in that context. And the only them that it looks like this could be talking about if you go back to Daniel chapter nine, uh, Daniel chapter two, it's talking about the angels coming down as they did in the days of Noah, and in the days of Noah they walked on this earth and mingled their seed with the seed of women and produced a race of giants. And so, in the, in the, and it says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So there's going to be something like that. Didn't we see that in Revelation chapter twelve, where Satan? And his angels are cast out of heaven and cast down to the earth. And in the days of Noah, they had authority, obviously because they're superior kind of beings to mankind. So they'll be on this earth again. And notice what the Antichrist is going to do with them. He shall cause them to rule over many. A couple of the brothers in the church here, when we sit around and talk about these things, uh, one of the brothers, he makes a pretty good case for those ten kings actually being ten angels. Ten of those fallen angels to whom the Antichrist gives this kind of authority to rule. Uh, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. So there's going to be a restructuring of the borders, probably in the Middle East again. And at the time of the end, and then all of a sudden, now, this, his, remember his, his, um, his life is, is short. I mean, his, his, um, his government is short. He only has three and a half years, according to Revelation chapter 13. And as he comes down to the end of that, it says, At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. And just skip down to verse number 44. And I don't know what this means, but I have a feeling he gets some bad news. He gets some bad news. What could possibly be bad news to the Antichrist? The Savior is coming. Remember Revelation chapter 19? When the skies open in the east, the heavens open, and Jesus Christ and the armies in heaven start riding down toward the earth. Look at verse number 44. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. <laughs> uh, 
yeah, there's, this is bad news. This is bad news for him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. That's probably the battle of Armageddon. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. And here it is. <clears throat> Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. There's no remedy. That's the entire career of the Antichrist that you just read. He comes in with a lot of power, supernatural wisdom, a lot of strength. No one would even try to resist him because it seems like he cannot be conquered. He can't be resisted. And yet, God is just waiting until the appropriate time. It's just you get your three and a half years and then you're done. The sky's open. The church, the body of Christ, the bride, is now put on her army, her, her army uniform and gotten on her horses and is riding out of heaven down to destroy him and put an end to his kingdom. And Jesus Christ sets his kingdom up on the earth. And um, so, I mean, that's the whole story in a nutshell. Um, we're going to look at next time, we're going to look at some things uh, that the Bible describes, maybe that might be clues to, that, you know, w w might help us in, in like, w what, is there anything that we might want to look for? Is there anything that would help us in, uh, in knowing that those days are closer, that they're upon us? So we're going to check that out the next time, okay? So we'll stop there. We're out of time. All righty. Well, thank you for uh, your attention tonight. But I would encourage you, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, there are two important chapters that you should be, you should read. You should just go check them out and just compare them to what you see in Revelation chapter 13. And maybe by next Wednesday, if you come up with something or see anything in there that is, you know, worth uh, us discussing here, we could even open it up and have a discussion next Wednesday night if you see something in there that you'd like to talk about. Okay? All right. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for a book that shows...